Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, if talks with the province break down, QP education staff in Ontario have voted to strike. Does this mean a strike is imminent? Sluggish progress on confronting climate change has left our infrastructure vulnerable on the Atlantic coast. How is Ottawa's neglect going to affect us nationally? And we get the latest in Hockey Canada scandal with Dr. Ann Pegararo, co-director of the National Research Council for Gender Equity in Sport. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the headline is, uh, QP education staff in Ontario schools vote to strike if talks with the province break down. Uh, we're going to give you some details on that. Now, later in the program, Education Minister Stephen Lecce will join us. We wanted to try to have him on uh, in this early segment, but uh, we have to work with other people's schedules, and, and that's understandable. But he will be with us a little bit later on. But to start off the show and to start off the discussion on this, we are pleased to welcome to the program Laura Walton. Laura is the president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions and an education assistant herself. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about where we are now. The The strike vote uh, happened. Uh, the overwhelming majority of your members uh, voted in favor of this. Now, I just I want to clarify for our listeners, this does not mean there's a strike is imminent, does it? Absolutely not. What this is is a vote of support to the issues that are at the bargaining table and a commitment that workers are willing to fight to ensure that families, students, and ourselves get what we need in this round of negotiations. So it's it's a, another tool in the kit, basically, to say, look, if things don't work out, this is an option for us. And legally, Absolutely. you have to go through this process, don't you? Absolutely. By law, you do have to go through this process. And uh, there are several more legal steps before a, a strike could even take place. Because uh, I'm just responding to some of the stuff I've heard, and I'm sure you've sent some of the emails and, and, and tweets that have gone out on this as well. Uh, parents don't have to worry. It's not as if the kids are going to get yanked out of school later this week or something. There's negotiation to be done, and even even if the, you get to a point where you figure there's an impasse here, uh, again, you have to have a no-board report, and then you know there's notifications, yeah. et cetera. So there's a process here. Absolutely, there's a process. And even enshrined within the School Board Collective Bargaining Act, there's a five-day notice period uh, for parents as well. So there will be plenty. But I think the real key thing is none of us want to go on strike. Nobody wants to remove services from kids. But what we know right now is that the level of service that is taking place in our schools is at a terrible level. There is not enough staff in place. There is not enough boards across this province are saying they can't hire and they can't recruit. And much of that has to do with our low wages and working conditions. These are issues that have to be discussed at a bargaining table and need to be dealt with. Um, you know, right now we're seeing boards hiring unqualified staff. The reason that they're looking for unqualified is because they can't they can't attack, attract, pardon me, um, qualified staff to do these, this work. What about the attrition rate, Laura? Maybe you could just fill us in uh, on, on that, because it's happened in so many other professions. Uh, because of the pandemic and because of lockdowns and because of a number of other initiatives, uh, some people just walked away and said, look, I, I, I've got to go find something else. Uh, is, yeah. that, is that a concern with your members? Absolutely. Every day I'm hearing from members who are just saying, I can't do this anymore. And that personal struggle um, is heartbreaking because none of us became education workers because we thought we were going to be Fortune 500 folks. We became education workers because we care deeply about kids and their future. But we have to be able to afford to live, and we need to have working conditions that are safe. And right now, you know, these things aren't taking place in our schools, and it's a problem. 
All right, I want to get to the salary and, and the money aspect in a second, but let's talk about that work environment and uh, and some of the concerns. Uh, a lot of people are going to be familiar with the concerns during COVID about uh, ventilation systems, etc. cetera. Uh, we were assured by the province that most of that has been looked after. Not completely, but it's, it's in good shape now, much better than it was. Uh, and I think they kind of indicating that they can check that box. Can they? Well, there's still a long way to go on ventilation, but the ventilation upkeep requires our folks. And we can't attract HVAC people to do that work because of the wage. So, But there's also working condition issues about short staffing. There's working conditions um, around violence in the workplace. These things long predated the pandemic and were kind of pushed to the side by the pandemic. It's time to talk about it now. Well, uh, the violence issue is uh, something that needs to be done, and that goes, is, is very much tied into staffing, isn't it? It's, uh, for instance, yeah. when it comes to education assistants who are members as well with you, uh, it's, it's workload and how many students each individual has to be in charge of, and you can't be in two places at once. No, <laughs> and if we could, we, we, we've already tried. <laughs> uh, and I understand that frustration. I hear that from parents. I hear that from education yeah. assistants themselves who are just saying, look, at, we, you know, as you say, that we're not here to get rich. We're just trying to do our job. Uh, but if I have yeah. to run from one student to the next, and there's at least, these are people that need good. attention and special assistance, uh, but the ratios uh, just seem to be out of whack here. They're terribly out of whack. When I first started my career 20 years ago, um, you know, I did have good ratios. When I left my school uh, to do the work that I'm doing now, I was going between children every 15 minutes. How can you get anything done in that way? You can't. Let's, okay, let's, let's get into the financial end of it, because I know that's what the government seems to be talking about here, is that, you know, you, uh, we, nobody wanted a strike, and here they are with a strike vote right now, and you, they say they've offered what they consider to be a fair offer right now. Uh, and, and the money that's on the table right now is, well, I'll, I'll just read what the province is saying anyway. Uh, they've offered a 2% increase each year over four years for those making less than $40,000 a year. Uh, which is a lot of your members, and a dollar, one twenty-five percent annual increase for those that are earning more than that. Uh, that's a kind of a two-tier system of, of salary increases. What's your response to that? We do not negotiate two-tier agreements. That's the first piece. Every worker deserves the same, you know, pay raise. But I think we also need to be clear: one point two five and two percent at a time when inflation is at two percent for a group of workers that is the lowest paid who already have seen an 11% of their purchasing power, you know, chipped away by this government who had already capped our wages or the previous government that froze our wages, it's just not good enough. It's not going to answer the issues that are at the table right now. Well, if you do that math, I mean, you know, the numbers I saw last week, inflation's right now at 7.5%, uh, and they're offering you 2%. If, if you were to accept that, if your members were to accept that, uh, you're starting off on the whole, aren't you? I mean, you know, we, we've just we've just done a, a number of programs here in the last little while, and I know you know this, Laura, uh, about people that can't put food on the table. What if we do? Well, can I, can I pay the mortgage? Can I pay the rent? Uh, people are having to make some pretty tough decisions right now, and, and the you know the money that's coming in here is going to be a factor in that. Huge, huge factor, huge factor. And you know, this is a group of people who are already behind, and this government wants to put them further in the hole. They are not six-figure earners. They, on average, make thirty-nine thousand dollars a year, and they just cannot cut anything else out of their budget. This is not a group of people who you know they already aren't going. You know, they're they're seeking food banks. They're seeking relief from family and friends for bills. They're not going on vacations. They can't afford that. These folks just want to be able to clothe their kids, feed their kids, and go to do the work that they love doing, which is supporting kids at schools. 
talk about the, the people that are involved in this. When we talk about QP, these are not the teachers. I want people to understand that. That's a separate no. negotiation, different contract altogether. Uh, but there's a significant number of people in support roles here. Uh, we've talked about the education assistants, but we're talking about custodians, office staff, uh, and, and other folks that, uh, that yeah. are basically the, you know, the people the that make the school run on a daily basis, I would think, Laura. Yeah, no, they are. They're the backbone. So it's maintenance and trades. It's ECEs. It's speech language. It's clerical. It's IT. It's library workers, EAs, custodians. Uh, you know, we have close to 700 different classifications that we represent, all of whom do integral work to, you know, the schools. And they're often the unsung heroes. People don't see them. Uh, now, you mentioned something a second ago that I think is going to be key to this. And I'll ask Mr. Minister Lecce about this when he joins us later on in the program today. Because uh, many of the issues you've talked about here, as you mentioned, have predated COVID. These were negotiations that were going on. There was some concern about staffing levels, about ratio of education assistance to, to students. Uh, and frankly, with, with some of the other support staff as well, uh, we know the stories. And if they people don't remember, I'll remind them. Uh, the boards of education were actually uh, uh, opposed to a number of the things that the province was and, and the ministry was trying to impose at that particular time. Uh, you know, they actually had, in many cases, had to get permission to go into reserves to cover some of these costs. Uh, yes. And it was never resolved. Uh, and, and then yes. COVID hit. And of course, everything kind of got, as you mentioned, shoved aside. Uh, but these are issues that still are outstanding and they're going to have to be addressed, I would think, at some point. Yes. And, and that's what we're saying. It's time to start talking about these now. Um, and we do realize that it's coming out of, you know, two years of pandemic. But if we don't fight now for our kids, when do we fight? So what's your time frame on this? I know there's a, another set we're of going, negotiations scheduled. Yeah, uh, we're going back to the table on Thursday and Friday. And I'm really hopeful with bringing this mandate back to the table and bringing the issues that we have back to the table that this government will see. The table has turned. It's time to talk about a real deal and not continue to embarrass and undercut our folks. Uh, Minister Lecce, and I'll ask him again when he joins us, uh, has said they're going to stay at the table. I, I assume you're going to stay at the table until there's some resolution here? Absolutely. Our goal is to get a real deal. Uh, but staying at the table should not necessarily ensue just staring across the table at each other with no conversation going on. There's, no, uh, there's got to be a, 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 some, some give and take here, I would think. Absolutely. Yes. There, there so, needs to be, and it's time for the government to come to the table and talk about this. We haven't seen them. Does it concern you, as, as somebody who's representing your, your union members, and, and as you mentioned, the average salary here is about $39,000, and this is important work that people are doing, of course. These are our children. These are the environments in which our children are learning, and these are the people that help uh, students that need uh, special assistance, of course. Uh, when they say, look at, you know, th this is all we can afford to do right now. And then you get a story like last week where the government announces they have a $2 billion surplus. Uh, it's not as if you're saying, hey, we want a piece of that. But it, it, it kind of takes the air out of their balloon about, well, we're hard-pressed financially here. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's really where these folks are feeling so disrespected, right? Is that you hear about this surplus and then you hear about a government that says that we don't have the money. It doesn't relate. So you've got your position, and, and you've got the government's position on a situation like this. Uh, your initial uh, response, if I recall, was about an 11% increase, uh, and that's across the board for all members. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just heading into another um, interview. Yeah, we have, we have asked for $3.25. There is not an 11% uh, increase. It's a $3.25% increase. And they're coming back with, uh, well, 2% uh, over a number of years right now. Are you looking for a long-term contract here? 
Are we looking for a three-year contract? Okay. So they they have your side of the story. You have their side of the story. Uh, are you confident that you can find some 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 consensus here? Yes, I am confident that we can come to a resolution, and I think we're going to come to a resolution. And I don't know if you can hear it behind me, but I'm sitting in a room with over a thousand people who are supportive of the work that is happening right now in our school. And I think you know the minister needs to be clear about that. You can hear these folks. Um, these are parents. They want us to have a real deal. Oh, I'll let you get to your uh, your meeting. You. Uh, this is important at this time, and, and we just want to make sure that everybody is fully aware of exactly what is happening. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, we'll hopefully stay in touch, and there hopefully can be some resolution to this uh, sooner than later, too. Thank you again for the time today. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Laura Waltner is the president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Uh, it's confrontational, at least it appears to be confrontational anyway, uh, depending on your characterization. And, and I, I don't even want to say which side are you on, because, I mean, we, we should all be on the side of a better education system uh, and the things that we want for that. And, and we've talked about the, the number of shortcomings within this system. And it's not pointing fingers at anybody. It's just saying, I think there's an acknowledgement on both sides that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done here. And uh, these particular workers, of course, are, are key parts of that education system. Uh, anybody who has a, a child with special needs and who needs special assistance in the classroom uh, fully understands the importance of education assistance. And uh, they don't make a ton of money, but uh, it's, it's important work that they do. And, of course, the custodial staff and, and the clerical staff, the office staff at all these schools. These are the ones that are represented by this particular union, by CUPE. And uh, I don't know if they're that far apart on these issues. Uh, and I'm hoping that this can happen, you know, get get resolved and that we're going to find some some resolution, some middle ground, I guess, on a situation like this. Uh, nobody wants to see a walkout. None, none of the, the people that I've talked to that do this uh, sort of thing for a living uh, want to walk out. I mean, we want to get back to quote unquote normal. And uh, they're looking for some stability, I guess. And we all are. I mean, they're in the same boat that many other people are. This is not just about the education system. Uh, there's many people returning to work now after COVID restrictions and, and the mess that we went through economically with that. And we're all looking for some stability. You know, you get worried when you hear about inflation jumping like this. And, you know, what's going to happen next week, next month? A story this morning, of course, in the news that gasoline prices are going up again. Uh, that's going to have an impact on people's uh, weekly and monthly budgets, too. So I understand the frustration. I understand the concern here. Uh, and I understand that the government's going to try to be as frugal as they can. That's what governments do, right? So we'll find out. And uh, just to remind you, uh, we are going to be talking with the education minister uh, a little bit later on in the program and get his read on what's going on uh, and what's going to be happening with the negotiations when they resume in just a couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting piece that was uh, in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago, and I believe it's uh, published in the Hamilton Spectator today. Uh, and uh, it, uh, the title is Ottawa has neglected some of Canada's problems, and now we are all paying the price. Uh, the author is uh, Heather Schofield. She's an economics columnist, of course, for the Toronto Star. And uh, she joins us here on the program to talk about the, the article and, well, the rationale behind it, too, which is uh, pretty significant. Heather, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Nice to be here. Uh, we, we know the news stories. We all saw what happened, of course, with the the hurricane. We saw what happened on the Atlantic coast. Uh, and we all know the many of the other problems you've outlined here. Uh, but I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that 
look, the government can't control the weather, uh, but they can control some of the, the things that, that, that should be done to try to mitigate some of this impact. And they're talking the talk, and they've been doing that for years, Heather, but uh, they're not walking the walk a whole lot. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you can roll your eyes at uh, the, at if, if you like, at, at environmentalists who are saying, okay, this, this, this hurricane um, that hit the Atlantic coast so hard is because of climate change. We don't know definitively that yet, but I guess I would make the point that it just really doesn't matter about that particular hurricane and the particular causes. What does matter here is that we are getting natural disasters more and more frequently because of climate change. And we've known that this was going to happen for ages. And, uh, you know, it's been on the boil for, for, for quite a long time. Like, think about last summer um, when we had these atmospheric rivers in BC and, and the town of Lytton um, burned down. And then a couple months later was flooded. That was in BC. I mean, that, this is one one spot in Canada, right, that just keeps getting slammed over and over again. And we have, uh, you know, there's hurricane season for sure. It comes every year. Um, but this is, you know, really brutal to see all the all the houses swept into the sea and, and people without power for so long. Um, it so all of that really begs the question. Okay, we know that natural disasters are more and more frequent. We know that they're going to. It's 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 a problem that's not going to get any better because climate change is upon us. What are we doing about it? And this is not about cutting emissions. This is about building up our infrastructure to make sure that things don't get swept in the sea into the sea when it get when the sea rises, or to make sure that things don't get washed away when floods come, or that they don't burn down when we get massive forest fires, or so forth. How do we? Go about, um, you know, changing the way we build things and 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 basically strengthening all our infrastructure that's already out there to make sure that we're not completely crushed with these natural disasters every time they come. And that's not a rhetorical question anymore because we've seen the damage that's been caused here. The concern mm -hmm. I've always had is is governments tend to be you know short term thinkers. I mean, they're worried about the next re-election. They're not necessarily worried about what this is going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and right. it's easy to be dismissive of something. They say, well, you know, we really don't have the money right now. We want to put this over here. We want to spend this on here. Uh, and and we, we're, we're committed to that, but it's 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 going to be down the road sometime. Well, you know, in the meantime, as you say, the uh, the, the number of incidents like this are starting to, to pile up. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really as dedicated to this? And not just the governments, but us, I, I think, as a population, are we as dedicated to this as we say we are? Yeah, it's I mean, there's no doubt it's already costing us billions of dollars. And that price tag, I mean, there are, there are various people that are crunching these numbers. We've had the um, the. Uh, Budget watchdog in Ontario um, crunched some numbers just last week, and um, some pretty massive think tanks also look at the, the the potential cost if we don't repair, and then what the costs are if we do, you know, actually deal with climate adaptation right now. And they all come out with the same conclusion, which is it's going to cost more if we just let things go. Um, so we should do it now. The thing is, it's not sexy, uh, as you say, like, you know, <laughs> building stronger foundations and dikes and stuff like that. It's uh, it's not it's not the sexiest campaign promise to run on. But I think, um, you know, at this point, I mean, I think the resistance in politicians for, for the longest time was, OK, we can talk about climate change, but, you know, it, until it's in our faces, it's not it's kind of a theoretical thing to many people. But it's it's not that theoretical anymore. It, it is it's here and it's causing damage. So so, you know, um, there is a climate adaptation strategy that's supposed to be coming out um, by the end of November. It's kind of late. It's trundling along. Um, but, you know, we'll, we will see some plans 
whether you know with and hopefully money to go with it um but it's uh, it's been slow in coming but you know i you bring up a good point i mean it's it's not just a government um problem here this is an an everybody problem um you know there's uh businesses are obviously uh, very vulnerable to climate change. What are they doing to make sure that their balance sheets are not exposed, to make sure that their assets are not exposed, to make sure that they don't get washed away theoretically or really um, in by by what by you know the natural disasters coming at us? And then on an individual front, you know, like what are we? Uh, insurance is a big problem. Um, there are have been lots of talks um, for years about how to make sure homeowners are properly insured against you know natural disasters and flooding and so forth and that people don't build or or live in floodplains and and do we know where the floodplains are and and so forth um but these are you know we're still talking and there's been you know incremental progress but i i, I live uh i live near ottawa you know my area just around here was 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 flooded uh in 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 um you know Two, two times in three years past the 100-year mark, right, of flooding. Mm-hmm. Two times in three years, right? So so why, why are people still living there in that floodplain? You know, th- there's an answer to that. You know, we don't – people – builders are, are not properly looking at the floodplain maps. The floodplain maps are, you know, they're on a website somewhere. Are they are they watching that? Are they compelled to not build there? Um, you know, what, what about insurance? So, you know, people who are just left living there and their homes get swept away, are they left without a home? Or what happens to that? You know, we have yet to come up with a very coherent answer on how to deal with all of those very kind of very practical, not very sexy things to deal with climate change well and and that goes back i mean you know i I'm, I'm we could probably spend the whole entire segment here just pointing fingers at this politician and that politician etc but I, I think the overarching question here is do they have the political courage to do these sorts of things and uh, if you know, your point over the floodplains i mean i, I had relatives that were involved in that when the went up in the ottawa area and we've seen it happen here i mean you know i know you know this neck of the woods pretty well we had people a couple of years ago in the grand river floodplain and why, what was that house doing there in the first place well somebody gave the okay yeah don't worry about it yeah i know it's not a floodplain but hey what are the chances well the chances are pretty good these days uh that something could catastrophic could happen like that so uh, we, we've got to be aware of that and simply not give in to say well we, we, you know it's, it's not going to happen here that's something that happens someplace else it's happening here now yeah and, and i would just say you know uh, foot dragging is a problem uh, broader than than just adaptation here at home um you know if we, we look at um there's a whole push that we've been talking for years again to transition to clean energy and off of oil and gas because of emissions. But we've been talking about it for so long. Um, and, you know, yes, there's technology and yes, there's subsidies encouraging companies to think about broader solutions and so forth. But meanwhile, Russia invades Ukraine and all of a sudden the oil price is up and down and all over the place. Europe is running short of gas. We don't know how they're going to get through the winter. Gas prices are astronomical. We are paying the price right here in Canada, right? We see it all the time. Every time we go to the pump, um, there, that the, the our inflation problem is completely tied up in that energy problem. If we had perhaps um, moved faster on clean energy and transitions, we would have better options right now than just saying, just, you know, the 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 solution right now for for powers around the world is to go around looking for more natural gas for for Germany and Europe, um, including putting some serious pressure on on Canadians to produce more natural gas and somehow get it into the global system. 
Um, that is a very clumsy solution right now. And our dependence on Russia, Russian oil and gas is just brutal. Um, you know, we can just only wish that we'd moved a lot faster on clean energy transition. Well, and even then, and I agree, it's a, it's a short-term clumsy solution, but it begs the question, why didn't you see this coming? Why weren't the, where, Where's the long-term planning? You know, it's a rich resource, and, you know, the chancellor was just over here a couple of weeks ago, and, and basically the prime minister said, no, it's not going to happen. Sorry, you know, we're not going to invest the money in, in, in a liquid gas uh, facility in the east that could actually be beneficial to you. Maybe instead of simply saying no, maybe that was the time to start that conversation and say maybe we should start thinking about this long-term uh, because of the dependency on European uh, people for, for Russian uh, fuel. And, and you know, we could be part of the solution here, but it's easy for a government to simply say, no, we don't want to spend the money on that right now. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm this- not sure if it's a, if it's a government uh, decision to make there. I mean, uh, you know, there if there's going to be a market, I mean, the, the Prime Minister's case was there's no market right now for, for natural gas, so why would we go there? Um, but if there's going to be a market, I mean, Russia, it, it, Germany has got to go in there and say, yes, we are willing to buy natural, yeah. liquefied natural, natural gas from Canada for the long term. This is not just, uh, they can't just come and say we need it right now because it's not going to happen right now. You need to build it and then um, and then we have to make it worthwhile, right? So if they're going to, maybe they would you know, they've, they've got to be give and take on all sides here, right? That they have to make a commitment that they'll buy it for the long term. And of course, there's reluctance in Canada to invest over the long term because the signals from the government and from governments around the world have been, we're moving away from oil and gas. Absolutely. And and you have to wonder how long term that's going to be, which segues nicely, by the way, into what you also wrote about in the piece uh, about electricity dependency and, and the fact that we have not anticipated the fact that there's an increased need uh, for a more efficient system right now. I mean, everybody applauded the, the federal and provincial governments uh, for their commitment a few months ago to, to building EVs and building batteries and plants. That's going to put a strain on the system. And and as you mentioned in the piece, now the Ontario government is, is rethinking the shutdown of the Pickering plant, and maybe maybe we do need to spend the money to keep that plant up and running right now. I mean, did, does, nobody seems to connect the dots here and say, this is a great idea. I think EVs are fabulous, and they're the future, as, as they should be. But do we have the infrastructure to do it? And the, at the answer right now is we don't think so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is something that we've been um, talking about for years, about the many, many billions of dollars that's going to be needed in, in, in hydroelectricity uh, in order to, I mean, if that, if that is the clean energy future, um, which it does seem that we're heading in that way. If that's the clean energy future, um, Ontario's got a lot of work to do to, to and Quebec too, and and you know across the country um, to to actually get ready for that. And why aren't we there? We've been seriously. I've been writing about this for so long about you know the 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 many billions of dollars that it's going to be needed, and it can't all come from government, right? This has got to be. I mean, hydro first of all is provincial. Obviously, the federal has a has a big interest in it, but this is a private sector investment thing too. So how do we get all all three elements there? Um, investing the billions of dollars that's needed basically right now in order to make the, this happening happen. And it's not just, you know, electric vehicles, are, that's a big deal in terms of policy, right? Both the federal and provincial government want to see um, Ontario in particular become a, 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 a global power in, in making electric vehicles. It would replace the, the market share that we're losing in the auto sector right now. And uh, you know, it's it, it would use our critical minerals, and it would. I mean, there's so much potential there. But right now, it's a dream because we don't have the infrastructure to even get it up and running. And so we had the federal government throwing subsidies at both the supply and demand side, and very heavily into the nitty gritty of how that market should work one day. 
is that really the way we want to go? And are we going to be ready if we, we've got government working on all sides of this thing? It, it seems to me that that's kind of a clumsy way of going about it. And I think back to um, in in the last uh, election campaign, um, there was uh, an announcement, a couple of announcements from from the federal liberals about green steel and and putting. Uh, putting a bunch of subsidies into into making steel in a way that was really low emissions. But it turns out that in order to do that, yeah, you need a huge amount of electric power and it's just it's not there yet. And so, you know, it sounds amazing to do to to produce green steel. But are we really actually ready to to do that? Not yet. No, especially. And again, because there's an incongruity there, you know, for instance, if, if back to the idea about energy and, and electricity production here, if they don't go with Pickering and, and who knows if that's going to happen or not, uh, plan B is through four or five of these uh, gas powered uh, uh, energy plants. Did they not get the memo about how burning gas is actually bad for the environment? That's a step backwards. Yeah, I mean, the, the the world is rethinking natural gas right now, right? Because yeah. uh, we just because for this very same reason, we're just not ready with the alternatives. And so, okay, gas is not as bad as oil or coal um, in terms of emissions. So it seems to be the you know the second best option, but it's still not the ideal option. Um, same thing with nuclear, right? It's it's not the ideal option, but we've been slow. Uh, in, in, in getting the, 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 you know, the ideal options up and running and at, at scale. So, so we're stuck with that. Uh, a fascinating piece. And as I say, for our, our Hamilton listeners, it's available in the spec today. It was on the Toronto Star. I think it's still on the Star webpage anyway. Uh, and uh, it, it puts into context, I think, some of the concerns and some of the challenges that we're facing when it comes to energy and, uh, and government's visions or lack thereof, I guess some people might want to suggest. Heather, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate our conversation. All right. My pleasure. Have a great day. Have a good Thanksgiving. You, you betcha. Heather Schofield, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star and, of course, economics columnist uh, for that uh, Toronto chain as well, the uh, Torstar chain. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this morning, of course, uh, we had uh, Laura Walton on the program, the president of CUPE's Ontario uh, School Board of Unions. Uh, 97% majority of Ontario education workers have voted in favor of strike action if they can't get a new deal. Uh, but as uh, Laura told us earlier this morning, uh, nobody wants a strike. We don't want to be forced to stop doing the work we love. We don't want to go without pay just to get a good deal for students, parents, and each other. But education workers have said very clearly, if this government will not budge, we are willing to strike for a contract that is good for students, for families, and for workers. Uh, that was their position on this, as you heard earlier on our program. Uh, we want to find out how the government is going to respond to this. And to do so, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, the Ontario Education Minister, uh, Stephen Lecce. Uh, Minister, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Where are you uh, with the negotiations at this point? I know that you've had some discussions right now. You've got more talks scheduled for later this week, we're told. Uh, right. Clearly, there's a, there's a line in the sand here, or is there? Do you feel that there's still some wiggle room here? I, you know, I think the union has made a determination that they want to proceed potentially with a strike, notwithstanding the last two years of pandemic disruptions for kids. I am disappointed, but as I've noted, I am not surprised because we've seen this story before. To hear the president say, we don't want to strike, except over the past nearly five decades, that is precisely what education unions have done when they've not gotten the demands they've imposed on the government of the day of all political parties. So, I mean, look, I think there's a path to a deal. I do believe that. I think a lot of this happens in negotiations, a little bit of rhetoric on, you know, in theater, and that's fine. I just think that we got to keep in mind there are parents watching, 
and they're anxious, and these kids simply want to be in school. And the premier has given me a clear mandate, fight to ensure children remain in school. That's what we're going to do. And my hope is reasonableness will prevail because we've offered 8% uh, to workers over the course of our program. We're maintaining the best benefits, literally in the nation, the best pension, uh, perhaps among some of the industrialized world. I mean, we talked about the teacher pension plan, education plan is solid. And 131 paid sick days. Yes, I do believe it is reasonable recognizing these people play an important role in our schools. And honestly, I'm very grateful for what they do. Uh, we couldn't run our schools without them. So that's why I thought our proposal is reasonable. I think when I hear, a, you know, give us nearly 50% increase in compensation or else we'll strike, I do think it's unfair on the kids. And frankly, I think it's unaffordable on the taxpayer. Uh, on the other side of the coin, though, I mean, when you look at their current situation, well, even their, the, the short history of this, uh, well, the previous government, yeah, New York's, but the previous government froze uh, their, their their salaries. Uh, you, your government has put a ceiling on them. Uh, in the meantime, we've had runaway inflation, which is impacting you, me, and everybody else, including them. So you can understand their frustration and their angst about what's going to be happening going forward. QP workers, education workers in this province, play a critical role, and I thank them if they're listening for the work they do. We pay them on average $27 an hour. A education worker in a school makes more than their equivalent in virtually every sector in the economy. The same job in a hospital, they're making more. Same job in a college, in a university, in a transportation sector, in finance, in manufacturing, in literally every industry equivalent, they make more. Wages have been at or above inflation over the past 20 years. There is literally over 10,000 additional education assistants uh, in our schools. These are the workers we're talking about in part because of hiring over the past 20 years, even though the student population has remained frozen. So we are adding more people. Part of this proposal we've got before the evening is actually to hire 1,800 more for the coming year and every year over the course of this contract, more staff to provide a critical role. But our wages, you know, on average is around $49,000 for a worker. And I do believe when you're looking at compensation, when you add it all together, and I do believe when you're adding two points per year, you're maintaining the best pension and benefit program in 131 paid sick days. Look, I think that is a reasonable offer. And the question I ask for you, Bill, is for people listening today, folks, could any of you tell me if you are eligible for a nearly 50-point increase in compensation? And I'm asking, obviously, a bit of a rhetorical question. We know the answer. Virtually no one in this economy is. So I'm asking for some reasonableness. I'd rather money flow to kids than to increasing compensation among a sector that is already literally amongst the highest paid in the nation. And I think, yes, they play critical roles. Yes, inflation is high. Let's just be reasonable, come up with an offer that is affordable and, frankly, does not create an impact on the taxpayer. Because whatever I sign with QP becomes the literal floor, the minimum in the teacher unions. That becomes the minimum standard in our negotiating position. They get that or more. So it's twenty, nearly $20 billion sector impact. Uh, I mean, $20 billion is more than the entire education budgets you know, of uh, the Perry provinces combined. I mean, this is not insignificant money, and it's going to have to come from somewhere, and we're not going to raise taxes. We're not going to cut essential services, critical services, to do this. So I'm just asking for some reasonableness to prevail. Uh, this strike action is, is disappointing, but it's, 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 it's obviously a reminder for me of how critical the in-person learning experience has been. And I've seen, like you, I'm sure you saw, you see these kids. They're happy. Yep. And honestly, you can't quantify that. I don't know how you, you know, to see their smiles and see them engaged in learning. It's even the teachers are telling me that they're happy to be back. So let's just stay in school, stay at the table. Let's get a decent deal we could all live with. 
uh, final question, the same one I asked uh, Laura Walton just a little while ago when she was on the program. Mm -hmm. uh, given the circumstances here, and, and as you say, the scenario that's, that's being followed right now, uh, there, there is some wiggle room here, you feel. Uh, you go back to the table later on this week. Are you confident that there can be a solution here? You know, I, I'm confident that the offer we brought forth is reasonable, affordable, uh, that they're already among some of the highest paid equivalents in the country. Having said that, last time I went through this a few years ago, and the government went through this with this union, there was rhetoric and all types of stuff happening right up into the end. And you'll remember that late Sunday night, we got a deal. We can get a deal. It just requires all the parties to put students at the forefront of this discussion. And when you're starting the negotiation off in the summer with a commitment to a strike, or, or rather a strike vote to enable a strike, before the government even introduced or brought forth our first proposal, it, it wasn't uh, you know, particularly uh, a promising early step. But yes, I do believe we can get there, and I think kids deserve that effort. The context of striking and strike votes it suggests that you're prepared to leave the table. And I frankly believe on a moral basis, given all the impacts of learning loss that is so massive in math and, and literacy too, when it comes to mental health, physical health, I'm imploring the union to stop this, 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 this story that happens every couple of years the last nearly 50 years in Ontario. Work with us. Let's come up with something we can all live with. It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be fair for your members. It has to be good for kids and preserve stability. And that is exactly what I hope to advance this week and, frankly, every week as we continue negotiating with, with all of our education partners. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, good luck to everybody involved going forward. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Have a good day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, story about Hockey Canada seems to be getting worse and worse as we get more information. President and former members of Hockey Canada's board of directors are sitting before a heritage committee in Ottawa. They've been doing this for the last couple of days to answer more allegations of financial impropriety stemming from a report that a second fund was actually set up to deal with sexual assault allegations and other lawsuits. Global's Claude Fig has the details for us. If they thought they faced tough questions the last time they sat before a committee in Ottawa, present and former members of Hockey Canada's Board of Governors can expect an even bigger earful later this morning after new allegations surfaced Monday with the Globe and Mail reporting that the organization had set up a second fund to pay off sexual assault claims and other lawsuits. I feel like uh, I'm lacking vocabulary right now to express because uh, the stories keep on coming out. And for Minister for Sport Pascal Saint-Onge, no matter the explanation, there can only be one solution. What we're all expecting and what I'm expecting is for uh, executive management uh, resignation at this point. Claude Fague, Global News. It's a, a troubling situation for everybody involved in this. And uh, what are the solutions? Well, I think the minister just had a pretty good idea there. I'm not so sure that's going to even happen, too. Uh, try to get some perspective on this. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Ann Pegararo, who is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me again. You get a bad situation going worse. I mean, it was bad enough that they did this. They didn't tell us about this. So they didn't tell us about the payments. Uh, were you surprised that there was a second fund set up too? Uh, yeah, I guess I kind of was, and I don't think I'll be surprised anymore. <laughs> I think that's the uh, that's probably the last piece of surprise I had, mainly because they've testified twice in front of um, Parliament on these hearings and never disclosed this fund. 
And and this is guilt by omission, by the way. I mean, they're going to say, well, you know, you didn't ask the right question. That seems to be the implication we're getting from some of the boards. Uh, but it does kind of indicate that they're being less than forthcoming here. I do. And I think in all of the, uh, you know, uh, communications, whether they're they're answering questions, whether they're putting out their own PR, they have been less than genuine in all of it. And I think, uh, you know, maybe it's the finally the time for the Canadians to to call them on that. I guess one of the most troubling aspects of this, I mean, the fact that it happened is bad enough, uh, but the fact that they figured they had to have a, another stream for this indicates the magnitude of the problem, the number of, of, of allegations of sexual misconduct that went on here. Uh, you know, we talked about that one particular time with the national team, uh, seems like a long time ago now. Uh, th- this is epidemic. Absolutely. And we, you know, we, we're seeing more um, reports coming out from every sport that is a- a- epidemic. But the difference, I think, with hockey is they, as opposed to dealing with changing culture, have just been setting up large multi-million dollar funds to pay out victims rather than actually stopping the behaviors and changing the culture in their sport. They're just uh, sweeping out of the rug with millions of dollars. Uh, and as we said, I'm assuming uh, we'll get more details about this as time goes on. Uh, but these, as you mentioned, are settlements. I mean, even in the case of the the first payout that we found out about, about the, the national, the members of the national team, uh, there was no investigation, uh, no charges related. There was no accountability. The people that were alleged to have been the perpetrators in this uh, basically got off with nothing. Yeah, and we're seeing it. I think there's another report that was narrowed significantly in a scope around the Canadian Hockey League that Sheldon Kennedy was a part of. So we see this culture in in hockey as a sport. We're seeing it in all sports, but I think acutely in hockey in terms of um, you know, rather than than uh, d- d- bust open the doors and let's take a look at how ugly things are, we're going to narrow scopes. We're not going to actually involve police. We're going to try to keep this in-house and we're going to try to just pay off people um, and hope it goes away. I, the wordsmithing on this, I've, uh, well, it's mind-boggling, really. Uh, the second fund is called the Participants Legacy Trust Fund, uh, created by the organization and its members for more than $7.1 million from the National Equity Fund. They, they, now, they, here's the quote that just rankles me. The money was earmarked, quote, for matters including to, but not limited to, sexual abuse. Uh, apparently, the overwhelming majority of this was for sexual abuse, uh, but they tried to coach that by saying, well, it could be for people who come back years later uh, because of aggravated injuries. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that their legal representation, I guess, doctor said that there's a, a statute of limitations on those injuries. Uh, you can't come back 25 years later and say, I hurt my knee, I need compensation. Uh, but you can if it's sexual assault. I mean, so clearly uh, they're concerned here, I guess, about the plethora of number of allegations that are coming forward here. I would think internally they know, you know, they're getting these all the time and they're probably very much concerned that this is going to keep rolling out, particularly now when the limelight is shining pretty hard on them. Every victim out there should be coming forward if they can with support to be able to, um, you know, tell their stories and or access this money because obviously Hockey Canada is willing to pay it. But the more people we have, um, you know, bravely telling their stories, the better hope we have that uh, the groundswell will help us change sport in Canada. You and I have talked about this in past discussions, and you just alluded to it a second ago. Uh, we've kind of been asleep at the switch. I mean, this is apparently an ongoing problem, not just in hockey, but in, in many other facets of sports, too. We talked about the gymnastics team, the soccer teams, uh, and, and I, those are the ones that come to mind right off the bat. I'm sure there are many, many more like in situations very similar to this. Uh, we, we haven't been watching, and, and as a result, a lot of people have suffered. 
Yeah, I think we've been watching differently. We've been watching success. We've been watching medals. We've been cheering on athletes. And uh, we haven't been paying attention to the signals that those athletes have sent us, in, in particular in high-performance sport. Rowing put out a report yesterday about um, uh, verbal and, and physical uh, abuse in their sport. Uh, we saw Bob said and Skeleton have to call their general meeting because they were getting uh, the governance there was getting attacked big report came out of the US on women's soccer yesterday. They're just unfolding continually. And I think that we've been very caught up in watching success of athletes and cheering for medals um, and not really taking a good look at what, what the system is that's producing those medals. Uh, where's the breakdown here? Is, is, is in the accountability? Is it, is it oversight? What's, what's not happening that should be happening? I think it's it's a, a system that's been crafted in a way to focus, uh, again, on sporting success and that if I'm inside the system and I see something, I have to weigh the pros and cons of reporting that versus the success of winning a medal and the money it brings to my organization. And so we've got CEOs of, of national sport organizations, provincial sport organizations that have to balance solvency financial solvency uh versus the abuse that's happening in their players because uniformly we're seeing that the harassment and abuse that are happening to athletes are also usually coming from successful coaches and that's where people turn their eyes so in other words if you, if you see something or experience something even worse i suppose uh you say nothing uh because the accusation is going to be a level of, well you're ruining our chances to win now thanks a lot for that Absolutely. And those who have come forward have either been, you know, kicked out of the sport or gaslit that they're not telling the real tr the truth. And so we see that over and over again. And so that is a culture of silence that's, that's been in, in most Canadian sports we're starting to hear now. So was there a structure in place that was being ignored or do we have to revisit this whole process about about accountability? I think that we need to revisit parts of it. I think the structure, um, you know, is good at some levels, but I think that the way that, that sport's been allowed to police itself and stay very internal has created this sort of festering of, of this situation. You know, finally, we do have this Office of Sport Integrity that's an external agency. You know, we heard if we go back to hockey as an example, most recently they selected the lawyers that you'd have to talk to if you wanted to, uh, and they paid them. So how's that a real investigation of a system? Um, those lawyers are paid to protect. It's the same lawyers they brought to the hearings. So now we have this national system and we're struggling to get organizations to sign on to it. We need every national sport organization and then we need mechanisms at the community sport level all the way through the system to allow individuals to come forward without um, uh, bad recourse and to have independent investigations. I mean, in the past, I, I'm overstating this just to make my point, but it just seems as if these organizations, multifaceted organizations, different sports basically said to the government, just give us the money and we got this, we can handle this, okay, we're fine. Uh, can we cut them that much slack again going forward? I don't think so. I think that the government, uh, rightly so, we hear we hear from the minister already by the freezing of funds. I think we now see a government um, and a sport minister who's going to create a system of checks and balances that didn't exist before. Ways that when you get your money, you must report. You know, I think I'm I'm hopeful that we're moving towards some sort of proactive set of standards for the system that would um, allow us to to put a seal of approval or disapproval on a sporting organization based on how they're reporting in terms of um, what exists inside the organization to stop this kind of abuse, to create a positive sport experience for Canadians. I'm, I mean, the fact that the, the, these sexual assaults is happening is, is, is egregious. That's terrible. Uh, the fact that they seem to have swept them under the carpet without investigation is, is even worse. Uh, and, and, 
this is maybe not the most magnificent cry, but it's one of the things that concerns about it. But the parents of the of the people in Hockey Canada that paid their fees every year, uh, which they assume was going to go for the betterment of the sport, you know, the, uh, any number of different things that, that had to happen to try to enhance the sport, the training, uh, the enjoyment of it for people that are involved in this, men and women, young girls and boys. The fact that Hockey Canada would actually take that fund and use it for this purpose. I, I, as, as if I were a parent involved in this, and I know thousands and thousands who are, uh, I, I'd be insulted and angry, frankly, that they're using my money without my permission to do something like this. Absolutely, and I think we have to remember that hockey belongs to the to parents, to participants. It does, hockey Canada does not own hockey in Canada, and the power is in the members of that organization. Those are the parents, those are the participants, and they're the easiest and best leverage for change. I'd be outraged if my money was going to pay off this as opposed to changing and creating a safe environment for my child. And I think those are the voices that need to be heard now. Parents can can vote with their feet by by removing their children from the sport or refusing to pay those fees to, to, to Hockey Canada, um, and they can demand the change. We know participation in hockey is going down. This could be one of the reasons um, but it is our national game, and it belongs to us as Canadians, and I think we have the right to demand that change. In including, and I know the minister's talked about this uh, on a couple of different occasions, financial oversight. Uh, you know, you know, if they're whether it's corporate, whether it's government money, whatever the case might be, I, I, as as parents, as as you say, as as well, basically. Uh, people that are involved in this. I mean, we're shareholders, I guess, in this whole situation. We're sending our money over there. Don't we have a right to understand exactly how much they have, where they're spending it? Absolutely. 100%. You're right. We're like the shareholders of Hockey Canada, the people who pay the fees to put their children into the sport. And we have a right to know. And, and we're seeing now that a large chunk of that money is not about growing the game, not about getting better coaching, not about more infrastructure, not about um, uh, building a pathway for my child to go from, you know, peewee all the way through. It's about paying off egregious behavior by the athletes who are already in the system ahead of my child. So if I'm a parent, I'm, I'm livid. I deserve to know exactly the accounting for this money and we deserve real transparent um you know management from hockey canada i know one of the questions that's uh, that's going to be asked today uh, is is basically how many cases are you dealing with right now or how many have you dealt with because they're pretty pretty uh, oh not very forthcoming about this either we we really don't know the magnitude of the problem i mean there's a dollar figure but how many people have come forward and, and i guess to your point doctor how many are going to come forward now yeah and i think that that I feel like we're past the point where we can expect the transparency from this current leadership. I think the sport ministers called for it. I think many MPs have been calling for it. I think parents, I think Canadians in answering the polls and the questions that are going out there are all saying that the Hockey Canada needs a complete overhaul at the leadership level to get us that kind of information to move to transparent. The only people that don't seem to get this is, is the people inside that organization themselves right now. Well, I don't know if they feel as if they're protected. I mean, they did offer up Mr. Brindamore, as, I guess, as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, but that's not enough. I mean, it gets even subsequent to him leaving. Uh, and the interim uh, had Miss Skinner go, going into that position. Uh, we're, we're starting to get more things uncovered here. I mean, you know, it's a pox on all their houses. I mean, we really don't need any or should have any of these people involved in this anymore, I would think. 
No, and, and, and they all have long track records inside the culture of that organization, 20 years, two decades, you know, plus for some of them who are in those senior management positions. How can they, who've been indoctrinated into the culture of what they've done around silencing victims, be the ones to make this change? They don't know any different than the operating that they've been doing for the last couple of decades. So I, you know, I hope that they're going to resign, but I'm, I've lost faith in in them as an organization to really see... Um, you know, to see what the best path forward for the game in Canada, not for themselves, but for the game in Canada. Is it uh, prudent at this stage for legal authorities, uh, police, RCMP, I don't know who in, in this particular circumstance since the national situation, uh, to obtain or seek these records so they can find out exactly who has been charged and who has been accused in situations like this? Yeah, I, I sort of wonder, you know, if they if they clean this up without involving the police, have they covered up crimes? And that to me is is obviously something that we should be concerned about, but also that that the legal system in, in Canada should pursue. I think a full audit financially to see if there's been misappropriation of funds to to do these activities really outside of the mandate that they have as a as an organization. Um, and I know the MPs are are calling for a full audit. So I think both sides we need to look at the legalities of the way that they've operated and the way that they've managed the money. Uh, I know we're almost out of time. I get, I want to take 60 more seconds if I could and get your reaction uh, to this survey that Hockey Canada actually sent out uh, to some of its members. Uh, the, quite a bit of pushback. One, the, the one that jumped, these, this is a questionnaire basically, and the one that jumped out right now, uh, do you strongly agree or strongly disagree that the level of criticism by the media towards Hockey Canada is overblown? That, that's one of the questions they wanted people to ask or answer, rather, in situations like this. They're very self-serving, and the timing on this stinks. Yeah, I mean, t to me, this is this is something that uh, is is a distraction. It's them trying to get a positive uh, spin on their situation. Uh, and it, 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 again, shows their lack of understanding of the situation, inability to read the room and actually make change. What I hope doesn't happen is today's hearings don't focus on that survey. It's a survey. What we need to be focusing on is actually what's happening inside that organization and not the distraction of, of their PR moves. Exactly. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for continuing the conversation. You bet. Dr. Ann Pegararo, uh, co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.